I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Tequila Sunrise. <laughs> Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Andros Jones. And I'm one of your hosts, and my name is Brian Connolly. Which one of us is the drug dealer? Which one of us is the cop? <laughs> well, who's the most liked? That would be the drug dealer, right? So, <laughs> whichever one of us is the nicest one, the one I you want to hang out with. Yeah, I guess that's you. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's you. Uh, yeah, uh, we're here to talk about the film Tequila Sunrise, based upon the Eagles song. Of the same name. Uh, <laughs> Do you like the Eagles? A lot of people don't. Uh, I think liking the Eagles is kind of the. I mean, the 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 Eagles are a, a, a very likable band. They are sort of like the. Who's that actor who played Robin? Oh, uh, Chris O'Donnell. Yeah, they're the Chris O'Donnell <laughs> of rock and roll. <laughs> So I'm just like you seem fine. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> then if you if you found out that Chris O'Donnell was one of the most like financially successful actors of all time, you might be like, hmm. Yeah. So I don't <laughs> like, know if that's people, weird. <laughs> I don't know if people like. I don't think people hate the Eagles. I think people sort of resent that the Eagles take up so much space in the firmament of rock and roll because of their financial success at a time when. At a time of great excess in in rock and roll, but I, I'm not here to I'm not here to cast dispersions on the band, only to make ludicrous uh, suggestions that this film was based upon this song, which it's not. If, if you try and unpack that, it will. Uh, I mean, let's let's just look at it for a second, okay? Uh, he was just a hired hand working on the dreams he planned to try. The days go by. That could be. Yeah. I don't. know, That could be either of our characters. Mm-hmm. That could be. Uh, I think this may be about more about Kurt Russell. Uh, she wasn't just another woman, and I couldn't keep from coming on. It's been so long. Also, could apply to this. Uh, yeah, Michelle, Michelle Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer yeah. yeah. <laughs> Take another shot of courage. Wonder why the right words never come. You just get numb. Uh, also, you know what? I, I do think. Now I'm thinking that this film actually is Definitely. based. So we did. We did uh, the Sean Penn. <laughs> movie based on the Springsteen song a few episodes back. So maybe we're just, we're, uh, we're, because when we were wondering in that episode, uh, what, like, what were other movies based on, on songs? So here is one that maybe is, I, I don't know, but I think it may be based on the drink because there's a lot of that in this movie. That's Do you possible. like the drink, the tequila sunrise? Do you enjoy drinking that? It's, I mean, whatever. I mean, it's a it's a fine drink. It's, it's <laughs> sort of sort of sweet and uh, yeah. It's a little the grenadine and orange juice seems like a bit much. You drink a lot of that, you're not gonna have you're not gonna have a great day <laughs> the next day. It's a lot of sugar. Uh, but, but we digress. <laughs> yes. Now with now that we've talked about '70s rock and uh, fruity cocktails. <laughs> Let's get down to this uh, this sort of uh, I don't know what you'd call it. It's kind of a 
I don't know what what is it? It's like an eighties yeah, uh, noir not quite a mystery. drama thriller. Yeah. It's Robert Town. I think this yeah. is a Robert Town film. I mean, it is a Robert Town film, and I think that's how we can describe it. And so, yeah. why don't I play a clip from the film? Then we can come back and talk about it. Great. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. So what do you figure, Nick? I made Lieutenant, Mac. It'll be announced next week. I'm the head of narcotics for L.A. County. Gee, uh, congratulations. That's all you got to say. Well, uh, what about your law degree? I thought you were trying to get into the DA's Stop worrying about my fucking career a minute. The federal government swears you're doing business in here. I'm not, not here or anywhere else, and you couldn't catch me if I was. Try the sand dabs. Try the sand dabs. Okay. Here, look, watch. <laughs> That's terrific. You know, I just think something's going on. Now, look, Mac, don't stop being a detective cool. just because there's no crime. Well, what do you think? What do you think's going on here, Well, Nick, maybe just something me. you don't want me to know about. And how are we treating huh? you this evening, Mr. McCusick? Oh, fine, thank you. Can I offer you anything more? More? <laughs> there are two fish you haven't tried, and they're excellent. Oh, well, sure. Okay. What are they? I thought I'd surprise you. Uh, this is my friend, Nick Frisia. He's... A pleasure. Joanne Balinari. Can I bring you a plate as well? Thanks. I've got to be going. Perhaps you'll try us another night, then. What I tried tonight was terrific. I'm pleased to hear it. Tequila Sunrise, written and directed by Robert Town, starts with a Coke deal and ends with a sax solo. It's the late 80s. <laughs> Mel Gibson plays a Coke dealer who is trying to get out of the game, but the cops and his former supplier won't let him. His old best friend, played by Kurt Russell, has just been promoted to lieutenant in charge of drug enforcement in Los Angeles. The feds, led by the great J.T. Walsh, have Gibson in their sights and are frustrated that Russell won't use his friendship with Gibson's character to bust him and his old connection, Carlos, a notorious Mexican drug lord. Russell is torn between his loyalty to his friend and his job, which only gets more complicated as both he and Gibson's character begin relationships with Michelle Pfeiffer's restaurateur. It's not a perfect film, but the script is great. Conrad Hall's cinematography and Richard Silbert's production design are gorgeous, and the cast, particularly Kurt Russell, are all giving very strong performances. I think we're going to have a blast talking about it, so fix yourself a dose of the titular cocktail, or just take a toot of cocaine off a tortilla <laughs> chip to get in the mood as we discuss Tequila Sunrise. <laughs> I've never seen anyone do coke off a tortilla chip and then eat it. That was amazing. <laughs> that's that's a new cinematic uh, image for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, there, there's there's just in just in that one shot. There's so much that hasn't aged well. But we'll get into it. We will get into it. Uh, so. Where? Yeah. How do we begin? Well, Where you, do, how about you ask I, me I, how the how is the world how, wrong? How this? is the world wrong about? Tequila Sunrise, the movie. 
I mean, I don't think anyone even thinks about this movie anymore. So I don't. No. Yeah, I don't think that. I mean, it was kind of a hit when it came out. Yeah. And it's the kind of movie that nobody makes anymore. And yeah, yeah it's it's not it's it's not like that. It's not perfect. It may not even be great. Uh, I don't think it's great. I but it is. It is such a. What's great about it is great about it, and it is a. I don't know. It's just the, one of those movies. It's sort of. It's a mid-level. It's a really great mid-level film. Like it's not. Tr- I don't think it's trying to be more than it is, and it kind of achieves that. And it's kind of locked in its time, which uh, makes it kind of cheesy, but also kind of fun. Like the dated aspects of it are really kind of enjoyable to me. Yeah, and it's very bizarre in its weird little corners. There's there's little pockets of strange in this movie that seems straightforward on the surface. But then there's just parts there just like, what the fuck? <laughs> Which we'll and you know what? <laughs> I really, I really got a sense that like if you if you squint and imagine like this film could take place in the Chinatown verse. Like it feels yeah, like Yeah, go on. What 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 would it be? Like what would be the drug that like if you say the Nick character was actually Jack Nicholson's character? Who? What would the Mel Gibson character of the 1940s be? Uh, well, no, I doing? think that this is this is just. <laughs> I think this is Robert Towns, Los Angeles. It's just that it's the 1980s now. And yeah, yeah. I mean, JJ Gitz is not in this. He's an old man. But this is this is still the same Los Angeles of yeah. Chinatown. It's just in the two Jakes. It was in the four in the in the post-war. Uh, in the in Chinatown, it was pre-war, and this would be, you know, well into the future. But there were just little. There's a lot of little things like the where they talk about. Oh, there are no citrus. Citrus. Uh, there's a line about. What is the line? Uh, I didn't think there are any citrus groves left in California. Is a line that Pfeiffer says, and there's a whole thing about uh, Carlos on his boat wanting to fish for albacore. And yeah, just you just I think some of the weirdness and it's what I like about it is it's a writer's film. It's it is a Robert Town mm-hmm. film and you can feel like you can feel aspects of the other things that he's written in this. And uh, I think that makes it I think that just makes it um, it gives it that sort of unique voice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's not he's no David Mamet. Uh, as a writer director, but you know, he's he definitely uh, I think he I think he does a, this is I think his first direct his the first film he directed and I think he does a great job at it. Um, yeah, you know that's not again he's not he's not a great great director but he's working with some amazing filmmake uh, film people on this so it just looks like an, a beautiful beautiful movie. So yeah, I don't know if I don't know if the world is wrong about this. I mean. The world's I would like to I think that if if the world paid more attention to this film people would really it would it would uh it would be a film that people talk about. I think it's one of Kurt Russell's best performances. What did you think about it? <laughs> it's weird because so did you so I guess did you watch this when it came out? Yeah. Yeah. You did. And did you like it then, like in the eighties, like at the time, where you're like, "This movie's great." No, you know, I like no, this movie. I, I, I liked it. Um, I, 
it was a time when I was just seeing everything. So it's not a film that I remember being like, oh, my God, this is amazing. But I remember that the buzz, I remember my acting coach, Morgan Shepard, was really impressed with Kurt Russell's performance in it. And he told us in acting class, you should watch this for his performance. And he was right. It's it's fantastic. I think it's a, it's a weird experience watching this movie because I have never seen this before until we did this episode. But I always remember this movie. Like this movie, I remember when it came out. I was a kid, but I remember the poster for it with the three people. Um, I remember always seeing the video box. But for some reason, even though I like all three of the leads, I never was drawn to it enough to actually watch it and i don't know why i don't know why i was like i never was like i want to see that movie uh even though there was a time when i was obsessed with kurt russell and was trying to watch everything i just kept skipping over it and i think i had it in my head maybe i was getting as confused with some other thing or maybe just based on the other movies those two guys have made but i thought this was going to be an action movie in my head i was like articula sunrise is an action movie and instead it's like not quite even a mystery it's more of just like a weird yeah, I guess thrillers the way like a character study yeah. basically, um, and so it just it like so that was kind of like oh okay weird, and then I just kind of was confused by a lot of it because I had no idea going in that like oh the drug dealer person is Mel Gibson like even at the beginning of the movie I'm like oh like so is Mel Gibson like undercover and he's working with Kurt Russell and it's like no he's just straight up a coke dealer. And then all the way till the very, you know, spoiler alert, happy ending. <laughs> you're just like, oh, and everything's fine. <laughs> it's just sort of like a weird, it's just sort of odd, you know. And like, uh, it's just like, it's weird to have your lead character be a Coke dealer, but he's not like some grimy guy. Like this clearly wasn't a movie made by, you know, Nancy Reagan in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> so you have like, the drug dealer who's just like seems like a normal dad, you know, because he kind of is portrayed that way. And then you just kind of find it slightly perplexing when Michelle Pfeiffer's like, I want to be with the drug dealer. He's the guy that I want to date. I, I love him, not the the, the cop. Um, and then it is kind of weird that the cop, Kurt Russell's like kind of OK with his friend doing it. Sort of not, but he's kind of not enough to do something that hard to, to stop him from it's just like a weird it's just the tone is weird we're just kind of like okay and the stakes never get so crazy high really it really is just sort of like this movie kind of floats by and then at the end some stuff happens with you know Raul Julia's character but even that's not like I think maybe because too I've been watching so much Miami Vice <clears throat> this last few months and this movie came out around Mm, season four of Miami Vice and it very much has that you know there's a lot of episodes of Miami Vice where it's Don Johnson's character knows a guy who's actually a criminal but they're old friends and what's he gonna do about it so it definitely rings the you know kind of hits that but and like this is a very aggressively 80s movie <laughs> Uh, like the hot tub sex scene is very bizarre. <laughs> we'll get to that. That's <laughs> we'll get to. I that. told you that's like what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then and then you're like wondering like, okay, who's this movie for? And then Bud Bedecker shows up as a cameo. I guess that's a cameo for who I don't know. Like who's watching this in 1988, being like, oh, I think that's Bud Bedecker playing a judge. Like that's just weird. He must have been friends with Robert Town, or I don't know. That's just a bizarre. Uh, so Bud, Bud Bedeker, for those who don't know, 
he was sort of that bridge of Western filmmakers bef- between John For- Ford and like Leone and Peckinpah. Like he was kind of in that middle, like the fifties. He's very much like in my mind, the same world as Douglas Sirk, but instead of melodramas was working with Westerns and kind of sneaking in the back door, these like themes and things because he just had free reign to make these sort of cheap Westerns. But they're incredible. And there's one based on an Elmore Leonard story, uh, Comanche Station. Uh, the Tall T is really good. And he's a director that not a lot of people talk about, except for like Martin Scorsese, I bet, at like a dinner party, who probably loves him. But like to have him be your cameo <laughs> in your 1980 movie is like, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, the whole thing by the end of the movie when I was like, and everybody's happy and everything's fine. You're like, oh, weird. Okay. This is and like when it ended, I was like, huh, that was a movie. I don't really understand exactly what it is. Like, I guess it's a drama. It's just it's just sort of a bizarre. Like, it makes sense that this was around the same time as the two Jakes. Like, this was what, two years before two Jakes as two Jakes was 90. Yeah. Is that right? 91. And which is also a weird movie. I think Robert Town's just a weird guy. Well, he, doesn't, he, didn't, maybe... really have, he didn't really have much to do with, with to the two Jakes. I mean, he wrote the well, script he, or he wrote co-wrote it. it, you know, or wrote a version. Remember, he wrote, uh, he wrote, he, he, he wrote an unfinished script and then abandoned the production before they shot and was unable to be reached to finish it. So Nicholson was working with an unfinished script. So, but I'm sure some of that's in the, Oh yeah, I'm sure. In, but I you just, know, and Chinatown's yeah. a weird movie. Like yeah. there's weird, his humor's weird. His just like Chinatown, the tone is kind of weird. Like you couldn't just describe Chinatown as just a copy of a film noir movie. There's a lot of other strange things going on in tequila sunrise. I'm not even really sure what you would compare it to. It is sort of just an odd anomaly of a movie kind of and i feel like it's kind of like a grown-up point break (laughs) yeah i could see that yeah point break but without the action scenes but just the relationship between these two grown men that is sort of an intense friendship or an intense level of understanding a Um, lot of cat and and mouse between people who don't want to be fighting but (laughs) are (laughs) <laughs> and yeah i agree the performances are really good like that is like the reason to watch this like especially for me Raul julia was like the stand <laughs> standout to me he's so good and he has all the best lines <laughs> like i think his his line delivery is my favorite uh in in this in this movie like he just has like the weirdest lines and the funniest like the she would have fucked a snake <laughs> it's like what is that that's a weird thing to say Raul julia okay like that's just yeah um <laughs> his whole speech about how friendship is the only thing you choose <laughs> and you can't I blame mean, a man for what his dick chooses any more than you can <laughs> blame a compass for pointing north <laughs> but he he's great and so yeah the, the end of it i was just sort of like is the world wrong about this movie i don't know but i don't really know kind of like my brain hasn't really processed exactly what this movie is or where it is placed into anything i just am kind of like huh that's an odd movie. I'm excited to hear what Andros has to say about it just because, yeah, it was just uh, it was not at all what I thought it would be. And it is weird to have a movie with this many famous people in it that nobody really talks about. Like, I feel there's definitely lesser movies by all three of these people that people talk about a lot, you know, so. 
So uh, aside from not being able to figure it out or what kind of movie it was, when you were watching it, did you enjoy yourself? Did you find it a – did you enjoy the ride? I think I enjoyed the first half more than the second half. I think I liked it when it was – well, that's Everybody when, that's when Raul to... Julia comes in to save the movie for you. <laughs> and yeah, and I think like, so like that first half when it's just sort of revealing who the characters are and just seeing these good actors be good and like the, the, the playing off of JT Walsh's characters funny, like how Kurt Russell and him don't get along and it's really funny. Mm-hmm. And like Arliss Howard is sort of like Mel Gibson's sort of like not, you know, great cousin uh, and like all these great, actors like Ari gross and all of them like just kind of having a good time and i think i was to me it was building to like oh this movie's building to something really exciting and then to me it just kind of halfway through just didn't get there and never kind of got to anything exciting because i think i kept thinking it was going to be an action movie like then things are going to kick in a gear and something exciting things are going to happen and it kind of always stays on the same level of and then they're going to go back to the restaurant and have a meal. And then you're going to see Mel Gibson have a tequila sunrise again. And then they're hanging out at his house or Michelle Pfeiffer's cooking breakfast for her son. Or they're hanging out on the beach. You're just kind of like, okay, this movie's kind of not quite getting into the gear that I thought it was. And then and then Raul Julia shows up and at least I can like watch him and be excited about him being hilarious and like cool. And then it has this – then I thought I knew what the ending was and then it goes on for another five minutes where I'm like, wait, what? What the fuck is happening in this movie? Uh, so, yeah, I was just sort of like, I am glad I watched it. Do I like this movie? I don't think so. But <laughs> uh, but it is a very – but it is definitely like something that I will talk about with people and try – and especially if I ever meet anyone who is like, that's my favorite movie because you know there's somebody. Yeah. I would love to pick their brain and be like, what? what is it about that movie that is – yeah. And then I think there's also like now knowing – I'm sorry that I just keep talking. Yeah, but no. <laughs> I think now knowing sort of like the real Mel Gibson like or like at least like the naughty Mel Gibson that we've seen, the, uh, the, the hate-filled Mel Gibson – and just sort of knowing that and seeing this movie where he's playing a character that would be a despicable character, but they're making him this like great, charming guy now kind of plays as like a weird comment on Hollywood, making us think that Mel Gibson is this great, charming, friendly guy, like in other movies, when in fact he's, you know, yelling maybe inappropriate things, <laughs> you know, drunkenly at people. <laughs> and so that's just an odd thing, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot. It's a, it's a it's a weird time capsule. Yeah, 1988 was a weird time. It, yeah. It was a very yeah. weird time. And there's something about this film that I feel like captures it. And to, and to make a yeah, and to make a pro kind of pro cocaine movie at the height of like Reagan just say no, like dare era America. <laughs> well, this would have been Bold. Bush, but yeah. Or the beginning of Bush, but still, like kind of like the tail end of the Reagan yeah. thing, getting the Bush, and that that kind of was like such a thing in the mid to late eighties was like, don't do drugs are bad, and we were seeing already the people who what got into cocaine and sort of the downfall of that by the end of the decade, and here's a movie being like, this guy's great. Well, I think I mean, but it, it sort of <laughs> tries to sort of play both ends of the street. It's sort of like, yeah, you know. Dealing Coke was cool in the 70s and in the early 80s. But then this guy just, you know, he was just doing it for the fun and for the kicks. And now he's getting out of it and they won't let him. And the way he 
relates to being a drug dealer and to drugs as like once his you know his his wife who by the way this film does not pass the Bechdel test by the way folks just <laughs> there's there's two female characters there's the love interest who sleeps with with both leads and then there's Mel Gibson's ex-wife who just wants money from him and <laughs> And she wishes he'd go back to dealing coke. And was like, I can't believe it. Your kid gets old enough to understand what coke is. And so you stop doing it. So the film definitely takes, like, the assumption is that drugs are bad. Drug dealers are bad. But Mel Gibson was just a crazy kid having fun. And now he's trying to get out of it because he's a good dad. And so it doesn't, it, it's not like... And maybe that's part of what's what's weird about it, that the film has this sort of wholesome yeah. <laughs> sheen over all this sleaziness. Like, it's not a sleazy film. That's what No, the, not at all. The film not should be all. sleazier, it sh- but it's yeah. not. It's very beautiful. The people are beautiful. You know, they all... Pretty much everyone in the film is a likable character except for even jt walsh who's a shitbag is pretty funny he's just not doing a good job you know that's all he's just not well, doing he, a good job he's pretty bad he's pretty <laughs> well yeah this is like the movie about drug people that you can watch like with your family like on tnt on like a sunday afternoon like this <laughs> it, it's not like you're not going to watch, you know, Wolf of Wall Street with your parents <laughs> but this one is so inoffensive <laughs> that you can that you can be like, well, this is a family movie. It's rated R, but I mean, we love these people. We love Mel Gibson. Let's just watch this together. Like, what, what's so bad about it? <laughs> is this something that people were saying in like 1995? Because at some point, people stopped loving Mel Gibson so much, or being a little bit, you know, more cautious to admit it. Uh, yeah, but yeah. So yeah, what? Tell me uh, about your experience uh, rewatching this movie. So what is like this? Like I've been kind of ranting about it. What? Are, what are the little pockets you find fascinating about this? Um, I just you know I I I love the just one like the one on one scenes, whether it's the scenes with Russell and Gibson or Russell and J T Walsh or Raúl Julia and Gibson. Like, they just have a lot of great two-hander scenes that are really well-written, beautifully played, and I just love to be there. I guess that's the actor in me. I like to see two really strong actors with great material. Like, <laughs> the scene, I, I, I remember I remembered loving it from when it first, when I first saw it, and I I've just I, I adore it now. There's a scene, and we'll get into talking about sort of the plot of the film. But there's one point where Kurt Russell, uh, basically J.T. Walsh is sort of running roughshod over Kurt Russell and taking over his office and talking down to him. And then there's like that scene, and then there's the next scene where Russell comes in and they're listening to the bug. And Russell just sort of calmly picks up four cups of coffee and dumps them on J.P. Walsh <laughs> and tells and just yells at him like in this great thing that I'll probably just put in right here. God damn it, what the fuck is the matter with you? I don't need you flying in from Washington, taking over my office, telling me to manufacture evidence. This is my backyard, Hal. I don't grow weeds in my backyard so I can pull them. And then... <laughs> 
<laughs> that it was a great scene. <laughs> and then afterwards, but the best thing is the scene afterwards where JT Walsh comes in to apologize and they have this quick little beat of like, <laughs> it was me. No, no, it was me. No, that no, was me. Okay, I guess it was. <laughs> and, and you wouldn't see that movie, a scene in a movie normally. I like those little, just that kind of, those little bits of nothingness. I think it's all the nothing, the great nothingness stuff in this movie. And then there are just like these explosions of super 80s awfulness. Like the <laughs> the the Gibson Michelle Pfeiffer sex scene. It is, it's it, insane. I don't know what it's I don't know it's shot I don't know what it's shot like. I, it's I not shot like I, a video. It's sort of shot like a horror film. <laughs> like, well, and you can't really tell. Well, that seems funny because you can't really tell exactly what's going on. Like, it's not like you ever see either of them naked, really. Like, clearly there's body doubles and, like, you don't really see. And it's kind of, uh, it's it's sort of, a, it's sort of dizzying. And then what's, and you get, I think you get more lingering shots on the guys eavesdropping on it. Like, the FBI guys listening to them have sex. And, uh. It's, so that is just an odd, and there's like a lot of like splashing around, and it's like it's not quite on the level of like the pool scene in Showgirls, but it's definitely strange. And it's got the sax, like that saxophone, well, well, that fucking saxophone well, is like. I can't well, and, it. and they're building this sexual tension between all three characters for like a lot, a big chunk of the movie because that that scene happens past the halfway point, oh, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. and. And it's not like a I sensual. Think that's the, I think that's the biggest action scene in the movie. And really, and there's nothing sensual about it, or anything. it really is just like. And here's an insane minute and a half of Mel Gibson and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer having sex, and it's just kind of confusing. Um. But awesome! <laughs> it's like no, I've never seen. I've never seen it. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, it's one of those. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> And, you know, I generally it's sex scenes in movies are so dumb anyway that there's something about this that I loved <laughs> just how it's like just insane over the like they brought in Jan de Bont <laughs> to, to direct the, <laughs> the sex scene. Yeah. It's like and then if you read it about they, they it was actually a horrible thing. Like they didn't it, they didn't use proper safety precautions and then both actors got all kinds of. Like got splinters on their bodies and rashes, oh. and had to shut down the set for like three days. Like it wasn't a real hot tub, or it wasn't finished. Something about it, like basically oh. not. So not Yikes. only is it a like is it a really weird scene, but the actors are in pain. <laughs> like we're in pain <laughs> afterwards. Uh, I wonder if that happened in the post the sex scene in Frank. That's also in. That, like, that's a yeah. much better hot tub sex scene. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, as long as we cover one movie a season that has a what's in season one? Do we have a movie with hot tubs? The uh, the imposters did it have a hot tub sex scene? Probably no. not. No. Um, uh. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, yikes! <laughs> but that scene is so weird. I really like the moment. What like there's so much to me. Like the parts I really like the most in this movie, other than just Raul Julie's performance, is all the scenes at the restaurant where Michelle Pfeiffer works and and the constant like disappointed staff and bartender who's just so annoyed at all these dealings like, going on that the thing is being like, oh, your fucking cop friend is here again. And he's just sort of like, can't we just close the restaurant like a normal time and just go home? And like, I have to like be friends with this cop guy who wants to fuck you. And then I got to be nice to this drug dealer who wants to fuck you. And I just want to like do my job and I've just got to like do roll my eyes constantly. <laughs> and then there's that odd part 
where like she comes into work and he's like, yeah, all the cops and FBI are here. There's hanging out in the wine basement. <laughs> and, they, and she goes down there and they're all just like eating pasta off of like makeshift tables, like like 20 of them just hanging out in the wine cellar. It's just very like that to me is funny like that. That should be like that should have been like the sitcom spinoff of this movie, like a Cheers type thing of like this Italian restaurant uh, where <laughs> this lady has to deal with drug dealers and cops and like which one is and, like, and the staff just like constantly fretting over how to how to deal with these clientele. <laughs> and like in a way, what you're talking about, like this movie is kind of a hangout movie in a way like it's not slow enough and it doesn't quite have only hang. It's not like Jackie Brown. But like it has a lot of – yeah, just people having dinner and just talking and just talking bullshit or people just like hanging out on the boat or hanging out in their house or whatever and just like having these little conversations while they eat food or have a drink. And uh, to the surprise of no one, you see many Tequila Sunrises drunk by uh, Mel Gibson. It is his drink of choice uh, in this in this movie. Um yeah, and then you just have he also casual... loves tequila. The just the, the plain old Herradura. I just yeah, yeah, that's um, his favorite brand. Yeah, so like there's like a weird like I think I wasn't expecting that, <clears throat> and even at the end, it's like the kind of half not quite climax. Like when we're gonna spoil this, when Raul Julia is shot. Even that moment just feels like they're just hanging out. They're just like yeah. having a conversation. He's not like panicking or like I'm dying. It's just sort of like. Oh, will you just stop talking? It's making me sick. You know, and he's just <laughs> sort of hanging. They're just hanging out. <laughs> and you're like, okay, this is odd. Or like the beginning of the movie when he, when Mel Gibson is busted by Kurt Russell, they didn't just leave the hotel room that he's like, was going to do this drug deal in. And then they just kind of have a casual conversation as they walk down the hallway. And then there's yeah. like a little moment of action when Mel Gibson has to like jump out a window and like run down a you know hill or whatever. But then that's it. Then it's back to just like we're hanging out at a restaurant. We're having dinner. <laughs> going to my son's birthday party and we're just hanging out and like eating cake. And you're like, OK, yeah, not, you know, compared to like Chinatown, which is so plot driven. There's so much story and it's complicated. This movie's not very complicated. It really is just like, let's just hang out on the beach and, uh, you know, <laughs> wonder about our lives you know it is i think you know this you know they i haven't read the original chinatown script but supposedly it was too long and you know it was was heavily edited by polanski and i think we've talked about this in an episode i don't know which one earlier maybe it was the sean penn something about well i don't i don't think that's it anyway something about this like Robert Town doesn't have the director sociopath thing of like letting like he lo he likes his characters too much. He wants to just hang out. He, he's created these characters. He just wants to have them hang out and talk to each other and say cool things. He doesn't have that director's thing of like, OK, well, we need to kill one of these people so that <laughs> there can be some stakes. You know, yeah. he's like, I don't want to kill. What? Wh who would you kill? I don't like. I well, guess we can kill Arliss <laughs> Howard. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and they do, and that's the only person that really dies, other than Raul Julia. Poor Arliss Howard. This is our second Arliss Howard movie after yep. Wilder Napalm. So yep. two yep. for him. Um, and that there's not even like, like there's that, but then there's not even the drama of like. Kurt Russell's kind of bummed that Mel Gibson and Michelle Pfeiffer got together and not with him. And he's sort of sad about it, 
but then not but he's kind of fine with it by you know the th- like three quarters of the way into the movie he's just sort of like oh whatever and then even at the end he's like you crazy kids like you deserve to be together he's like this is like dude, you would have been much more jealousy like that's how good of a friends they are in this movie that he's not even that like you think there'd be the scene of him like i'm gonna punch this guy out for taking my woman and we're gonna just like hate each other now and like we're gonna get in a fucking drunk fight that doesn't really happen it's just more like it's just like sad disappointment. <laughs> and I like that that's one of the things I think I like cuz I hate jealousy in films. I feel like it's just like I hate jealousy yeah. in life and I hate it in films too. So I think there is something about that about this thing about these two guys. These who, two macho guys. Yeah, but they're not that macho. I mean, they're definitely Well, but like, like they're these actors are known for being like yeah. in very masculine roles in movies and you think that they're going to like get into it over like who gets Michelle Pfeiffer. Well, isn't and it, it doesn't really happen. It doesn't really happen. Wouldn't you say that maybe the whole film, you know, they, they said there's, you know, you find the line that you can boil the whole film down to. And at the mm-hmm. point when Michelle Pfeiffer tells off Kurt Russell and she's like, if you want to fuck your friend, fuck your friend. Don't fuck me. <laughs> I feel like that's what this movie's about. Yeah. <laughs> like there's something yeah, the, well, you know what? Let's get into. I want to let's let's not hit every beat, but let's like let's do a little chronological walkthrough of this film, sure. if you don't mind, because I've made some notes I don't mind. and I feel yeah. like. So one of the things I love the, the sound design on this film is fucking great. That's one of the other things that I think really stands out. There's a lot of, you know, but the the film starts with the credits, no music. You just hear Mel Gibson and Ari Gross outside of what we are real realizing is going to be a drug deal. And we just hear them over the credits until we see the written and directed by Robert town. And then there's a, and then there's a little a wipe screen swipe mm-hmm. thing. And then we're in the movie, which I think is a really great way to start a movie. Uh, mm-hmm. And then throughout the film, as you said, there's like the surveillance aspect is, is constant. So we're always, aware it, it somehow it doesn't even though it's it's doing that it doesn't feel paranoid it should feel very paranoid that everyone's listening in to, like is constantly listening into stuff but to me it just gives it again more of just a feel like i like the mm-hmm. the aesthetic of that multi-layered thing of just like hearing people like you walk into an office of cops and they're listening to two characters talking on a tape recorder and or yeah i don't know there's something i really like about that and then that first scene of the drug deal that doesn't i think that's what it re, where it really hooks me the first scene where we where uh mel gibson and ari gross are waiting for the drug deal to begin and then this sort of skeezy looking sort of pre Mark Pellegrino character comes in <laughs> and uh, this is when Mar- me and Mark Pellegrino would have been in acting class and he just would have loved to have got this role. He did get this role, uh, get these roles, kind of roles in the future. But then behind him, Kurt Russell comes in and that first showdown between the two of them and I'm hooked. I'm like, I'm ready to spend a movie with these two characters. The The chemistry between them, the way they play off each other, um. Yeah, I just I think that's that's the scene that got me. Um, what did you think of that of the film's opening? I, it's good because they don't quite know what's happening. Like you, I'm trying like you're trying to figure out who all these people are because I didn't 
read anything about this movie. Like I don't know any, I went in totally blind on this movie's plot. And so I'm thinking, Oh, Mel Gibson's a cop. And and like, or were they both drug guys and Kurt Russell, or they're both undercut. Like, I'm just trying to figure it out because they're not really saying anything about it yet. They're just kind of giving each other these faces and stares of like, oh, they know each other. Are they not supposed to be there? Is one of them not, are they not working together? And even when they're outside the room talking, I'm still like, like learning and figuring out like who these characters are and what their relationship is. Um, yeah. So it is, I think it is a really good first scene. And, um, yeah, I I, it, I think it's a great way to start the movie. You're just kind of thrust into these two characters and you're learning slowly, but within one scene, kind of what their relationship is. It, it sets it, it for the whole movie. And then as Gibson is running away, he finds a uh, payphone and calls the this restaurant that Michelle Pfeiffer is the owner of to see if there's still room for him to get some food uh, before... Uh, before they close while he's on the run from the law. <laughs> and it's the beginning of the se- of the film telling us that Mel Gibson kind of likes Michelle Pfeiffer and he's kind of shy <laughs> about it. He's a little bit, he's a little bit of a shy guy for a, for a no for a, I don't know, swashbuckling wild man Coke dealer. Um, <laughs> and then we have our first scene with Kurt Russell and J.T. Walsh when Kurt Russell comes into the the surveillance van where J.T. Walsh and the rest of the feds are hanging out and, you know, basically uh, mocks and humiliates J.T. Walsh for one of many times in this film. <laughs> Which is great because normally J.T. Walsh is like the bad guy in the movie. Like he is the guy that is going to kill you or he's like really sinister and here he's just sort of like a guy who's really bad at his job, but is constantly humiliated in front of his own men by uh, by Kurt Russell, and he doesn't quite know how to handle it. <laughs> but he's great. I think he is. Oh yeah, he's always great. I love him. Probably the he's the film's secret weapon. I feel, I feel like because all those scenes, like the the dynamic between him and Russell, even though he's an unlikable character, all of those scenes are just. They're kind of great comedy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, then basically we, we find out that they are, that the feds are now listening in on the Italian restaurant and on Michelle Pfeiffer uh, suggesting some Quattro Formaggio uh, pasta for Mel Gibson. And uh, they're listening and, Kurt Russell decides, you know what? You send your guys home. Let me just go in and talk to him. That the food sounds great, and I'm uh, when he's talking about how the food sounds great. I'm starting to think, I think Brian might like this movie because <laughs> there is a lot of food stuff that goes on. And then we a have a great scene with the two of them, um, sort of playing cat and mouse games, but also really loving the sand dabs, and um, <laughs> both sort of cluing in on Michelle Pfeiffer and without her quite realizing what's going on there, that she has uh, invited two dangerous horn dogs into her restaurant. Um, <laughs> Should have put up that no horn dogs allowed <laughs> sign. They fuck that up. There's uh Russell makes, I can't tell if his, the character, I mean, his joke, he really makes kind of a racist joke to uh, Mel Gibson that, uh, 
you know, doesn't really age well, but is probably appropriate for L.A. cops in 1988, where they're saying they want to bust Mel Gibson because he's white, so they'll actually see his picture in the paper. Not great. Not great. <laughs> um, although, again, I wish, you know, in another movie, that would have sort of telegraphed that Kurt Russell is a bad cop and a bad dude and we would have seen some other evidence of that that's pretty so but since we don't see evidence of that it's funny you know you had the problem that the the coke dealer was too sympathetic i have the problem that the cop is too sympathetic <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um but uh but i think again i think that's the i think robert town just likes these characters so much that he's not yeah. willing to i don't know to hurt them or make them yeah unlikable in any way um i did you think it was weird that so michelle pfeiffer walks up to them and says there's still some fish on the menu you have that you haven't tried like have you ever ordered an order a plate of fish at a restaurant which is usually you know not a an inconsequential price and then be like i'm gonna have i'm gonna have another piece of fish in fact i'm gonna have every piece of fish on the menu (laughs) yeah i don't know or my mind like they were just joke like maybe that was her. It, I couldn't tell like is that line like her being kind of tired of these guys or just being there for hours drinking and eating a lot of seafood and <laughs> or she genuinely wanted them to try. I feel like she genuinely the wanted them to try that. Yeah, maybe she was like this. These guys are racking up quite a bill. They're a little tipsy. Let's like maybe I can sneak a fancy fish, one more. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. And there's something. Um, how can I say this delicately? I I don't think Robert Town is accidentally having our heroes, and when they meet Michelle Pfeiffer for the first time, sharing this piece of fish and loving it. Like there's something, the dirty joke that is in there that is embedded in there. I think is intentional. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Again, not as like it, the the sleaze in this film is well hidden, but it's there. Um, <laughs> just uh, just hidden behind the the raunchy saxophone. Um, <laughs> yeah, love it. Uh, one of my favorite instruments to hear <laughs> is the saxophone. Really? Yeah, makes it makes things better. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's... Baker Street, that sex of a part of oh, Baker yeah. Street. Okay. Oh man, oh, that yeah. is good. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that yes, everything in Baker Street is good. <laughs> I had an for it, I had an know? idea for a tribute ba- for like a, a tribute band, and it was called Baker Street. And that's all. Like you put together a band, it like it takes twenty people. You come out, you play that song, and you leave. That's just it. <laughs> do you do a longer version of nope, it? Nope, nope. You do the album. <laughs> Wait, the song's already kind of long. Yeah, it's already cut, like it's a 10-minute song or whatever. It's like an eight-minute, seven or eight-minute song. Yeah. You just come out and you, oh, do Baker, man. Like, you do Baker Street perfectly I, and leave. I'd pay, I'd, I'd pay to see that. If it, that. I feel like if that was what you did, that you would get a reputation and people would come out and be like, I will pay $10 to see an eight-minute song and then leave. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No introduction. It's just like it's just no. like you did the needle drop. Like we, the move, the song starts, the song finishes, and we leave, and we leave. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, 
Then uh, did you catch that there's a scene where Arliss Howard and Mel Gibson are hanging around just sitting on beanbag chairs watching yeah. TV? And do you get who yeah. you see on TV? No, what was on the TV? Uh, that's Matt LeBlanc. Oh, on a commercial. I, did. I thought it was him, but then I was like, but he seems like he'd be too young. But I guess not, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Pre-Friends Matt LeBlanc just showing up in a commercial in this Do you film. think that's an actual commercial that was on TV oh, in 1988? Yeah. yeah. Whatever it was. Yeah, I definitely. But now he has an IMDb credit on this movie probably just because of that the, on TV. It's like... Um... It's like the guy, another Michelle Pfeiffer thing. It was just like uh, with Michelle Pfeiffer's brother in Wolf, there was just a picture, and the picture was the actor Justin Kirk, who went on to be in the TV show Weeds and a lot of other things. And so, yeah, there you go. Just a little just a little piece of the time capsule. This is when, uh, when Kurt Russell and Michelle Pfeiffer have their getting to know you, <laughs> make out session Arturo does not want Kurt Russell hanging out in the no, restaurant he's, he's trying to get them to leave give them their keys but Michelle Pfeiffer sends him on his way it's raining out they have to go down into the wine cellar and she's trying to deal with the with the rain and Kurt Russell tries to help her and all this water comes pouring down on his neck and I gotta I gotta do a little sidebar here Earlier this uh, this week, we uh, was hanging out with my girlfriend watching TCM, and they were doing the uh, a whole day devoted to Elizabeth Taylor, and they showed the film Giant, and there's a scene in Giant where James Dean drinks water out of this I don't know like not really a faucet but like a you know like the 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 artesian well in Olympia just like a pipe coming out of the water like but sort of that Western thing of like just a mm-hmm. pipe coming out of out of a well and he drinks mm-hmm. it and then puts his head under it in the water poured and she visibly sighed she was like oh. i was like what was that she's like oh <laughs> sexy and and then so i had that in my mind when i'm watching the scene and the water just pours down on kurt russell's head and instead of michelle pfeiffer being like "Ooh, you're a goober she's like Take me. <laughs> yeah. And Only sex and water. That's what Michelle Pfeiffer's into. Hot, like splashy hot tubs oh, yeah. or like leaky, leaky ceilings or something about. Or the end with Mel Gibson in the ocean. It's just sort of like this is. Uh, this yeah, is how she funny, she gets oh, gets God. into it. Needs needs to have some water. You got me thinking of that uh, Elvis Costello songs, like Le- like Le- leaky sneaking, leaky feelings, sneaky feelings. Sorry, uh, never mind. I'm gonna cut that out. It's bad. Um, so yes, so the yeah water again, very much like that the, the theme Chinatown. of water, Chinatown. <laughs> in this, I case, bet Robert Town is very hydrated, man. <laughs> Yes. Right, like a ten glass of water a day. Like he's one of those people that just always has a glass of water by his side or in his hand, no matter what. Or maybe like, he's like he's like some sort of hydro fetishist. Oh, like, like Wolfgang Peterson. Like he's just yeah, what, yeah. He's super. He gets turned on by water. Or or he hates it, or he thinks it. He can't stop. Like there's so many William Peterson movies about water. Like that clearly he's just like obsessed. Wolfgang Peterson. Right. Yeah. You said William. What did I say? Oh, sorry. Wolfgang Peterson. Yeah. Because like Dust Boot and then Poseidon and now, then the perfect storm. And he's just like, are you aware? With water. Like this. So uh, <laughs> this is coming out many months after we're recording this. But 
you know, it was just today they announced that Wolfgang Peterson We're out of water? passed away. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. No, he died yesterday. So oh. I'm sorry to be the one. R.I.P. Peterson. Yeah. Uh, he was good, uh, you know, enemy mine, all that stuff. He's a good filmmaker. Yeah. But yeah, obsessive, a man obsessed with water. Just something about him and water. I don't know what. <laughs> Did he ever work with Michelle Pfeiffer or Robert Town is the question. No, uh, I don't think so. And reading about this, supposedly Michelle Pfeiffer and Robert Town did not get along. He said he was, she was the most difficult actress he's ever worked with, which makes me think that he was the most difficult director she ever had. Because, I mean, with. as we talked about last or two weeks ago, last episode with two Jakes, like, I feel he's maybe not easy to get along with. I think maybe Robert Town is a difficult person or just a kind of an artist locked in on certain things, or I don't know. Like, it doesn't seem like he plays well with others <laughs> yeah i mean he couldn't even get his shit together for two jakes which is literally made with his two friends you know like and he couldn't figure out how to get that going so yeah it's uh oh robert town an odd man i hope someday someone does like a good documentary on him i think it's deserved oh yeah and i would and i would love to just kind of because he's you know still going right isn't he still doing stuff yeah uh yeah, Robert Town. Um, <laughs> but yeah, water. A man obsessed with water. And then there's what I actually, I think, it's not my favorite scene in the movie, but I think it's probably, it's the best. Th- it's the film, it's the scene that gives the movie its tequila, its right to call itself Tequila Sunrise, because there's this fantastic scene with Gibson and Russell sitting on a couple of swings against uh super tequila e sunset mm-hmm. or a sunrise or I don't know. Anyway, with the tequila sun in the background and that's just a beautifully written and performed and shot scene. Um, yeah, just, just gorgeous. And that's Conrad Hall, uh, mm-hmm. the director of photography, giving you that. And did that, did that have the impact for you that it had for me? Yeah, that's, I think the best shot in the movie in a movie that I would have to honestly say I didn't think was very well shot, except for that scene. <laughs> and I'm kind of baffled by it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Cinematography. And that scene is definitely pretty, you know, as many scenes in front of sunsets or sunrises are. But the rest of the movie kind of feels a little straightforward in terms of how it looks, in my opinion. So maybe 1988 slow year for <laughs> cinematography. I don't know. Like the last emperor didn't come out that year. So they had to settle for uh, tequila sunrise to be one of the five movies up for cinematography. Didn't win. It lost to uh Mississippi burning. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's another uh, I guess Con- look morally confusing <laughs> film, but yeah, <laughs> but I guess Conrad Hall replaced a previous DP that was fired after 10 days because he didn't get along with Robert Town. Um, and I'm sure Robert Town said that that guy was difficult or whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> just, you know, it's like one thing I learned in therapy. If you keep having these problems, it's not them. It's you. <laughs> it's, you're, you got to look within and go, oh, maybe there's something wrong with me as to why these people keep not getting along with, with me and I don't get along with them. Uh, but yeah, Conrad Hall replaced someone after 10 days. So maybe... I don't know if they kept the first 10 days of that guy's stuff and it wasn't as good as the, cause Conrad Hall definitely known for being a great DP, but I thought the movie just looked okay. Like I really was expecting it to be like, oh, this is going to look amazing. And that scene, it does. 
in that scene, you're like, this is great. It's the title, but in visual, like this totally works. Uh, I like scenes too, where people talk and you just kind of see or like a kind of a silhouette or you don't quite see like all of them. Like, I don't know. It's just like a really good, it's a good moment. And just to give you some idea, some of the films that Conrad Hall shot, he shot Cool Hand Luke, In Cold Blood, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Fat City, uh, The Marathon Man. And then after Tequila Sunrise, he also shot American Beauty and Road to Perdition. I'm, I'm sure he won an Oscar for one of those, American Beauty, perhaps. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he must have been one of those people that town knew from back in the day. And then when he some he, new Hollywood guy yeah, yeah, and out of the blue, he gets a call like, you know, in the wee hours from Robert town saying, we just fired our director of photography. <laughs> Come on, Connie, can you help me out? He's like, can I shoot some sunsets? You can shoot sunsets, sunrises and, uh, and sex a weird scenes. sex scene. <laughs> can I make it a really weird sex scene, Bobby? He's like, sure, sure, let's do it. Let's get weird. It's like, not all right. really that it's like, weird. It's just, it's just not like, <laughs> yeah. It's I, not sexy. It's, it's, it's just a sex scene. It isn't sexy. It's right. just strange. It's a weird action uh, scene. Um, meanwhile, we're real. We're getting. We're meeting Raúl Julia for the first time, who shows up as a Mexican federal officer. But since we've already spoiled it, we can tell you. He's, he's not. not. He's, <laughs> he's a not. drug dealer. He's actually yeah. a drug dealer. J.T. Walsh has been cultivating a relationship with him for eight years <laughs> without knowing this, which is so. J.T. Walsh has been terrible at his job for at least eight years. <laughs> really bad at his job. Like from the first scene he's introduced to the end, he does not do a good. Like he should be fired. Like he should be doing something else. Clearly, this is not the career he's meant to do. Is be a bumbling awful fbi agent he gets fired with vengeance <laughs> um so uh yes and then there's just all these fan this is basically all the scenes with raul julia are fantastic he is just yeah. he's playing playing everyone off of each other he puts everyone in their place. Like there's this point where Kurt Russell comes down. And he's explaining to him, like Kurt Russell, who's been in charge in every scene. He's been the guy who knows what's going on and in charge and is putting people in their place. And he's sort of like, oh, I was here with this woman and we brought her down. And he's like, you are explaining quite a bit about a thing that is inconsequential. And it's like, oh, Raul Julia just like shut him down. And like, again, Raul Julia, very likable and not like the normal if like if like the big cartel guy showed up in a movie, it would normally be like, the oh he's really bad, or he's like he's like you feel sorry for Mel Gibson because he's gonna like work for this awful guy, or this guy's really threatening, and he is in a way. I mean, they kill Arliss Howard for being a rat, but like he still is very charming and likable. And there's never a time when Raul Julia plays it sort of like I'm the evil. He's not doing Scarface or anything, you know, like he's doing yeah. just another guy. Who's he just again, like just, sing, just, op- just his job. To sing and, opera and yeah. And you're just like, Oh, I like this guy. Like you like, you want to hang out with them. Yeah. Like when you, when you watch like scenes with these same characters in like any other movie, you're like, I don't want to hang out with these people. This seems like bad news, but this movie you're like, yeah, I want to, want to hang out with these guys and in their kitchen or whatever like just very very odd yeah (laughs) and uh then we have more surveillance oh and there's this weird line help me out with this uh 
so she's so Michelle Pfeiffer's now at Mel Gibson's house and she's cooking and the, all the surveillance is happening and she makes she's making spaghetti and JT Welsh I think JT Walsh says fancy dish spaghetti I can't tell if he's being sarcastic or if he really thinks that spaghetti is a fancy dish. It sounds like he's really impressed. Like, she's making spaghetti. All right. Well, she must really want to fuck. Like, <laughs> I don't think any woman is making spaghetti for J.T. Walsh's character. And so I think that sounds like better than his, like, you know, 1 a.m. Like, you know, microwave burrito or whatever he's got going on in his apartment. <laughs> I think he's like... A lady making literally anything for anyone is like foreign and exciting to him. <laughs> and I really like the scene, the scene for Gibson when he's explaining like it's the one scene where he's talking about how fun it is to sell drugs. And I liked it. I, <laughs> it was it because it, the rest of the time he's doing this sort of moralistic thing where he's a guy trying to get out of the game. But. I feel like the film wants it to be one where he's a guy who loved dealing drugs because dealing drugs was fun, not for the money, not for the drugs, but because he loved the thrill of it. And I feel mm-hmm. like this is the one scene that where he's able to express that. There's a couple places later where you kind of feel that, especially in some of the scenes with Raul Julia. But I wish there was more of that. And that was like the era of sort of, crazy Mel Gibson like the Lethal Weapon movies like this unhinged yeah. guy who gets off on the adrenaline of you know of dangerous situations and I think that would have uh, yeah. I wish we got more out of that but instead that's when we get into this this, this uh, sex scene which <laughs> I just think it's so so they're they're at the hot tub and you feel like there's like this romantic moment and you feel like something's about to start and then instead of them kissing we go back to the surveillance and then <laughs> the way this then we just get this slow shot of the camera like the like the the you know like the Jason view of this camera <laughs> sort of drifting into the house like something big is going to be happening something dangerous and you hear a little bit of splashing and then the saxophone kicks in and the crazy action sex uh and and uh and then uh Raul Julia sneaks into the house and we have that's when he first confronts Mel and he doesn't really confront him he sort of puts a gun to his head makes him think that he's going to be in danger for about 2 seconds and then they're all just laughing and happy to see each other and Mel Gibson's like what are you doing here and that's when he explains that uh, they think he's a cop and that he's got them all around their fingers. And I guess he's there. He's there to collect a, a whole bunch of millions of dollars that Mel Gibson's been holding for him all this time. <laughs> and this is also when Kurt Russell realizes and tells J.T. Walsh that Raul Julia is actually Carlos and not the guy that he's been pretending to be. And, uh, you know, another scene where J.T. Walsh just is like put so deeply in his place and uh i don't know this is when i stopped taking note taking notes because it just <laughs> ro- it gets into this whole just the action movie part of it like raul julia wants to kill michelle pfeiffer because she knows who he is mel gibson yeah. doesn't want him to kill michelle pfeiffer they have this fantastic scene where mel gibson 
is telling Raul Julia that all bullfighters are pussies while snorting coke off a tortilla chip. <laughs> yep. As you do. As, that's got to be something that Robert Town did once. And he's like, yeah, that was, that was great. That was a great afternoon I had with Jack. Let's let's put that in a movie. Uh, that time me and Robert Evans did coke off of tortilla chips. That was like, that was a great night. Let's, let's put that in this movie. Yeah. And um, you know, I feel like, <laughs> and going back to the Chinatown verse, I do feel like Kurt Russell has a, a lot of JJ gets about him. Like there's the way his, I know the, they say in the, in the, some of the notes on IMDb or Wikipedia that Kurt Russell chose to look like Pat Riley but he also <laughs> looks like he's got this the slick back hair of Nicholson and just a lot of the like the ways he snaps he feels like a gets kind of character also compromised you know sort of torn wanting to help but also being drawn into the complexities of this crime world um i don't know there's just the yeah there's action and fighting and the film was supposed to end with Mel Gibson's character dying in the explosion <laughs> and the fire and all that stuff. But, uh, but then the, I, being a 1980s movie, the executives insisted, no, we can't kill Mel. <laughs> the audience won't, won't want to see the, yeah, they want to see the, hear the saxophone music and see him kiss Michelle Pfeiffer in the surf. And then that's when the movie actually ends. And everyone, like, it's all three of them on the beach. It's like, what a great day. And then, yeah, then you're like, huh, okay. And it's funny the way that scene plays. Because like when you think Mel Gibson's dead, he falls in the water. And then when at the, in the morning when, she, when Kurt Russell's like, I got a surprise for you. And it's Mel Gibson staying in the water. It's as if he's just been in the water all night and never <laughs> left. And he's just like finally coming out being like, oh, yeah. Hey, everybody. <laughs> like... <laughs> It's such a weird ending. It's so strange. And you're like, what did I miss here? About like all three of these people are just cool with each other and everything's fine after all that happened. You're like, okay. <laughs> it's like what what's the sequel gonna be? Like where what do these guys do the next week? Tequila Sunset. Got? Tequila, Tequila Sunrise. Yeah, why doesn't Richard Linklater check in with these people every twenty years? Yeah. Tequila Sunrise, Tequila Sunset, after sunrise, tequila. <laughs> Uh, and just see like where they're at, you know, just like walk around with them on vacation. Or... <laughs> and, you know, I couldn't help but thinking uh, I didn't there's there's a scene towards the end where Kurt Russell and Mel Gibson have a little showdown where they have guns pulled on each other. But uh, spoiler alert, they don't shoot each other. Uh, but there's a scene where. It, it, at the end of that scene, Mel Gibson turns his back on Kurt Russell, and then Kurt Russell shoots the bullet in the air, and Mel, for a second, Mel Gibson thinks he was shot. And I was thinking, yeah. hmm, just a year earlier, uh, the folks from Canon were sending Robert Town uh, Norman Mailer's script for Tough Guys Don't Dance, where the John Bedford Lloyd character shoots a gun in the air behind Ryan O'Neill and makes him think mm -hmm. he was shot. And I'm thinking... Hmm. Well, the town, town steal a little thing I from think Robert Norman Mailer. Took a little bit of Norman Mailer's <laughs> mojo and put it in uh, Tequila Sunrise. Yeah. Well, you steal from the best, you know. Yeah, or the ones who uh, can't fight back. So. <laughs> yeah, Tequila Sunrise. Uh, have you seen the other Robert Town movies? He's only directed four movies. I've seen 
personal best. Um, I have seen that. Weird, weird story with that one. So that movie gets a little dirty. Like there's some there's some nudity in that movie. Am I right in thinking that? Because I swear it's this movie. My seventh grade PE teacher is like, we are going to watch Personal Best. We're not going to exercise today. We're just going to watch this movie. And then I think he didn't realize there was nudity in it. But it was like cut out. But he tried to cut it out. But he did it poorly. Like he taped it off HBO or whatever. So you'd see like a, se- a few seconds of like a nipple. And then it would cut away. And all of us would be like, wait, what was that? Because this is just, you know, the boys PE class. <laughs> And that's how I watched Personal Best. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and he did uh, Without Limits. Uh, Which I've never seen. I feel like... I feel like I've seen it, but maybe I haven't. There's another... Is this, this isn't the Prefontaine movie, is it? No. No, that's not it. I, I should see it, because it's got Billy Crudup, who I really, really like. So... Uh, who knows? Maybe we should check that out. I have seen his other one, Ask the Dust, and I don't know. Maybe it's good. I really didn't like it. I found it very, <laughs> uh, yeah, just icky. <laughs> very like it. Not in a not in a good not like in a sleazy good way. It stars Colin Farrell and Salma Hayek, and it is based upon a John Fante novel, and huh. It's just a yeah. I found it to be a dark and unpleasant film, but <laughs> in that case, I'm probably the world that's wrong. Some people. Yeah, no, you're right. It. Without Limits is the Prefontaine movie. There were the two Prefontaine movies. Okay. There was a one that was shot in Olympia. The one with Jared Leto, I think, just called Prefontaine. And then there was Without Limits. So for some reason, Hollywood had dueling Prefontaine movies. Why I don't know. <laughs> so I think I don't know his story. Why it's worth two movies? I don't. Like, he just was in the Olympics. What else is there? I don't know. I've never. I, he's before my time. Prefontaine. Uh, I was post Fontaine, so I don't know anything about him. Uh, but <laughs> interesting that did Robert Talman do that. And then of course he kept you know writing script. Yeah, being like the number one screenwriter in Hollywood, which is more what he's known for than being, you know. So Tequila Sunrise. The same year he wrote, uncredited, another Polanski movie, Frantic, which is great. I yeah. love that movie. And I guess uh, Harrison Ford read the Tequila Sunrise script while making Frantic and wanted to be the Mel Gibson character in this movie, which would have been really weird. Yeah. And then he decided that he had moral, there's something about it that he didn't agree with, probably, a, you know nice version of a drug dealer for Harrison Ford. He was like, ah, I don't want to, maybe I don't want to do it. And then the year after this is, uh, two Jakes and days of thunder. Uh, so like he, he was going, going along. And then right before this, he did uh, uncredited right on 8 million ways to die, which is another sort of very eighties cocaine in a movie, sort of like, I'm sure I think there's cocaine in the plot of that movie. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Robert Town, interesting person. I don't know if he's a good filmmaker in terms of a director. He's definitely a better like it's not like like you said, he's not like David Mamet. Like David Mamet is an actual good filmmaker and a great writer. Robert Town, better writer than filmmaker, but this is not a poorly directed movie. It's just I don't like what would be Robert Town's style as a filmmaker. I don't know. Maybe if we watch all four of his movies, we can figure that out. But I feel like he's definitely 
just into making the script into the movie. Like he's not going to edit his own thing because he wrote it. So he's going to make what he wants to make. Yeah. And just to, just to give people some ideas of some of his, like I'm looking at his IMDb, some of his credits, his, his uncredited credits include, uh, un, he was an uncredited writer on Bonnie and Clyde. He was an uncredited writer on McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Uh, on Jack Nicholson's directorial, I think, debut, Drive, He Said. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for The Last Detail, uncredited on Parallax View, uh, wrote Shampoo, uncredited on The Missouri Breaks, uncredited on Orca, uncredited on Heaven Can Wait. <laughs> he was just like, he was like Elaine May, like uh, who we talked about when we did Wolf. Like, he was just like the go-to script doctor like kind of like what john sales was up to too in the 90s of just like you're so good we want you to do the rewrite on this like this isn't quite working but can you do a polish and make it just better because you're just great and so we know the dialogue will all of a sudden be heightened and you know like in my mind it wasn't plot when he did these rewrites it was just like i'm gonna redo the dialogue and make it better and maybe tighten it up a bit and like who knows like it'd be interesting again if someone made a documentary about him i would love to know what did he, you know, add to, you know, to these like the Missouri breaks? Like what ideas were his, you know, or heaven can wait, you know, like that, like there's just so much, uh, yeah. Unanswered things when you, when you're that much of a script doctor that you're not getting credit, but like, yeah, I'd, I'd like to like to hear the stories. Yeah. And, you know, I'm saying all these films uncredited, but among them is Tough Guys Don't Dance, which in our first episode of the season... It's proven or false. Yeah, that he didn't... So I think there's part of that. I wonder if there's some part of it that's just sort of... You know, they, the the joke about the, the way to make a great martini is you just wave the vermouth over it and you don't actually pour the drink into it. That's like people <laughs> who like really want a, a super dry martini. <laughs> I feel like that might be what he does as a script doctor on some of this. It's just sort of like it's he read done. It. <laughs> we get, he read it and now we can say... <laughs> <laughs> that it's that Robert Town is like, involved in some way, and like maybe, maybe, maybe there was a phone call where he was like had one thing he said like you know it would be great if this happened, and then you're like, put give him an uncredited script on IMDb, <laughs> like he offered his opinion about one scene, like it's Robert Town, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but really, the last th- the last thing that his last credit is 2006. As a writer. Yeah, so I mean he's an old man now. He's he's probably retired. He was born in nineteen thirty-four. I think he's he's probably done. I mean, he's credited as being the writer of this new Chinatown. I'm sure he's so just, is I'm that, sure they the, just the, use... is it this based a thing? Yeah. And uh yeah, but you know, you never know. You yeah, they're never making know. a TV movie of Chinatown, which is so weird. Don't <laughs> don't not necessary. Don't. I'm hoping it's just season two of the offer and they're just saying it's new Chinatown, but it really is just going to be like the making of Chinatown with, you know, um, <clears throat> Danny DeVito as Jack Nicholson. And... <laughs> uh, Spike Lee as Roman Polanski and just <laughs> people that look nothing like them. Did don't act anything like them. Why not? That's um, what the offer did. <laughs> Yeah. All right. We did it. Tequila Sunrise. Uh, 
for a movie that I felt kind of eh about after watching, I felt we ha- I enjoyed talking about it for a for a, over an hour. This is good. <laughs> Raul Julia, R.I.P. He was so good, like always. Like I love him a lot, and uh, it's great to see a new performance from him that I haven't seen before, and just get excited all over again about Raul Julia every time. Yeah, yeah and J.T. Walsh. Both those guys died so young. Like, who knows what they'd be up to now if they hadn't died in, like, their 50s. Yeah. So, yeah. Two great, yeah. great actors. And, you know, I, I got to work I got to work with J.T. Walsh in the uh, yeah. in the prom. He played the principal. I'd That's go right. to the principal's office and find J.T. Walsh there. Was Fucking, he a serious guy in real life? He was hilarious. He would do what he would do. It was He's the only actor I've ever worked with who did this, and I don't know if he did this was if he just did this with me or if this was sort of his thing as being such a serious guy. Like we had a very serious scene, and before the scene, right up until they said action, he was just doing these bits about uh, my my character's name is Marty. He's like, so Marty, I'm not wearing any pants under this desk. Yeah, I got a full-on raging heart on. Oh yeah, <laughs> nothing I love better than to sit here with one of my students and action. <laughs> Marty, what do you do? <laughs> like, and it's so, gonna, cut. Oh man, my dick is hard as ever. Like, he, <laughs> so he would have been majorly canceled if he was around now. I guess people would not. Uh, he would have probably learned. He would probably have learned. But it was. Like, just, I guess I can't make those <laughs> jokes anymore. Um, <laughs> that's great. That's funny. Um, <laughs> what a great, great, great actor. Also great with Kurt Russell in Breakdown. Like that is a yeah. good like they play off each other well in that movie too. Like I love that movie, and yeah, somehow JT Walsh and Kurt Russell just uh, not liking each other makes for a good time at the movies. Yeah. Radio Eight Ball. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World Is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing. The Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at the World Is Wrong Podcast. And now, back to the show. So, when I recorded the outro for the last episode, uh, this is Andras, by the way, uh, I was trying to make sense of my co-host, Brian, dropping out of communication with me. And as I learned the day I recorded it, that he had told at least one mutual friend that we'd had a falling out that I was unaware of, which made it uncomfortable for this one mutual friend in particular to participate in this podcast. And it, it sounded like we were enemies. Um, 
It was a mind fuck, and I went to a, a weak place, and I appreciate your hanging with me through it. Uh, for me, that weak place lives in what I described in that outro as Jewish terror, blacklists and pogroms, gangs of bullies and the people who look the other way. Maybe we all have a place we go when something happens to us that we can't understand, a place where the hurt is both deep and impersonal. And to be clear, just because something hurts me where I'm Jewish doesn't necessarily mean I think it was aimed at this target. At least I do my best to try and tell the difference between prejudiced intent and the happenstance of what is. Heck, you listen to a whole podcast about a movie starring Mel Gibson, and I never once brought up his anti-Semitic ravings or the way they may have informed his films or the double standard that allows him to escape the cancellation befalling other Hollywood pariahs. Okay, well, I just said it now, but I didn't during the episode, so I don't need to make everything about anti-Semitism. But sometimes it feels like everything in my life, at least, is. Um... And that's where I was when I recorded the last outro. Now, I still haven't heard from Brian, and a couple of weeks on, I am I'm ready to be done feeling just totally weak about it. I know for a fact that he and I weren't in any kind of dispute before he dropped out of contact, so I'm not about to act like we're fighting now, which doesn't mean I'm not a little bit peeved. Disappearing with no explanation puts me in a very awkward and uncomfortable position, and it isn't very respectful to you, our listeners, either. At very least, it's, it's, uh, it's unprofessional. But I still have a hard time mustering any anger toward my friend Brian. And when I try, it gets swamped in confusion. This is just totally out of character. I've spent the entirety of this podcast protecting the many boundaries Brian and his wife set around his time and mental health from the very outset of the podcast. So I'm not really sure what he and I being at odds over something intense enough to demand this kind of drastic action would even look or feel like. I mean, we've honestly never had a fight or an argument. And where we've disagreed, we've discussed it and worked it out. Always. Maybe this is how Brian fights. Um... Maybe someday he'll tell me. I haven't seen the Banshees of Inishirin yet, but I understand the whole plot involves something like this, with Colin Farrell wondering why Brendan Gleeson doesn't want to be his friend anymore. Um, I saw a clip where Brendan Gleeson threatens to cut off his finger if Colin Farrell keeps trying to talk to him. That's more drastic than this, but I kind of feel like Brian's given me the finger. Anyway, I know I have to watch it, but right now it feels a little, uh, a little bit too close. Maybe by the time I record the next outro. Now, there is one thing, and I don't want to be delusional, but I keep thinking that this whole thing really has something to do with Brian's wife, who I, I don't really know very well, and I'm not going to say her name because, um, well, just because... Then this is then I can just be I can speak more freely, I guess. So in the last outro, I mentioned how she acted weird with me when my girlfriend and I visited Austin in September. But I didn't say how weird it was. And since it involved some serious cinematic wrongness of the sort this podcast is devoted to confronting, I think it's germane to the discussion on several levels. 
what happened was we were all in this diner on Brian and my girlfriend's birthday. They were both born on September 16th, coincidentally. And for Brian's birthday, we were visiting the town of, I believe it's Crawford, Texas, where they shot the film The Hotspot, a film we covered in a previous episode of the podcast. And we were talking about movies, which is pretty much all you talk about when you're hanging around with Brian and his friends. And we were all talking about the films we liked, the films we didn't like, why we liked them, why we didn't like them. And I was making a point I've made several times on the podcast about how I think Aaron Sorkin is a dangerous right-wing propagandist masquerading as America's great liberal dramatist. And in the middle of addressing the historical revisionism in films like Desi and Lucy and The Trial of the Chicago 7, his wife, who was sitting next to me in the booth, turned and said, I don't give a fuck what you think. And that shut down the conversation. It was weird, awkward, and totally out of the blue. We weren't arguing. Uh, no one was arguing. We were talking about movies. Um, anyway, when I brought it up the next day with Brian, he said that she's this way with lots of his friends, and she doesn't mean anything by it. It's not like she was particularly nice in the way she talked to Brian either. And I get the power of that kind of hypercritical woman energy. I, it's personally what I'm drawn to. Most of my favorite ladies have it. But if my friend were a woman and her husband treated her and me and lots of her other friends like that, I mean, it would be a red flag. In that case, if my friend stopped all communication, I might be more inclined to worry for her safety than to take it as having anything to do with me. Sometimes, I think, being raised feminist as I was makes it harder for me to navigate in the world as a man dealing with other men because I naturally fall back on the logic and the language of feminism. It actually drives my mother and plenty of other women in my life crazy when I do this. I, I suspect this is because people who justify their abusive behavior behind a veil of victimhood do not like having their privilege or abusive behavior pointed out to them in the language they believe they own. Certainly not by someone they have coded as their opposition in, uh, in some way. Now, I don't agree that these kind of human hypocrisies undermine the logic of feminist principles such as boundaries and consent, intersectionality, bodily autonomy, etc so much as it demonstrates how far we still have to go before these concepts are universally recognized as human principles and not the rhetorical property of one gender. Now, that's a massive intergenerational fish to fry, and it's not something which is likely to get figured out in my lifetime, so I suspect I will go on frustrating myself and others with my commitment to principles that sound, and maybe are, awkward when espoused by someone in a body like mine. In the meantime, I'm left to try and figure out what's the best friend thing to do in terms of Brian. I mean, I think with this I've raised as much of an alarm here regarding abusive patterns that I experienced and recognized when I was in Austin as feels appropriate to let my friend know if he ever needs a friend, I'm still here. Beyond that, I'm gonna try and take care of myself and trust the synchronicity of it all and hold space for Brian and I to enjoy talking about films once again, even if only for our own enjoyment at some time in the future. 
In the meantime, I think we need to accept that Brian has left this podcast for good. Uh, I personally think this is a great project, celebrating maligned films and film artists is something I'm really inspired about. And there's still a lot of films and film artists that I think the world is wrong about and I'd like to talk about. There are at least a few films and directors I've been wanting to engage that I knew made Brian a little nervous. And uh, if I don't do it on this podcast, I don't know when I will or when I'll have a chance to that makes sense. So I'm planning on continuing at least for a little while after the next batch of episodes I have recorded are done. I don't know what the schedule will be. Um, and I don't even really know what that iteration of the show would look like, but I'm going to try. Uh, of course, I'd love to find a new co-host or co-hosts with deep wells of film knowledge, unique tastes, and a willingness to accept our basic premise that the person who enjoys something is more correct about it than the person who doesn't. Uh, we oppose the Razzies and worst of lists and people who say, I don't give a fuck what you think to shut down friendly film conversations. Um, yeah, I'd love to find a co-host, but at the same time, uh, whatever those episodes are, we'll be discovering them together, and I hope you hang with me for it. I've been thinking about how I might keep the show running as a solo essay-type podcast, still focusing on the same general topic, but uh, honestly, that doesn't seem like nearly as much fun. And, I mean, I, I do, I hope I find some co-hosts, but of course, uh, a multi-decade-long friendship talking about films is not something that can easily be replicated. So whatever this is going forward after we finish out the Brian episodes that end with our uh, discussion of Gus Van Zandt's Psycho, which is going to be coming up in a, about a month, we shall see. Well, thanks for hanging with me through this, if you have. And now... Here's the end of the episode. What do we have coming up next? So coming up, we have the very obtuse, sort of obscure film, A Chronicle of Corpses. So uh, you're probably out there being like, what the fuck is that? Well, that's why we're going to cover it. When did that film uh, come out? Uh, it was like 2001. Okay. But you wouldn't tell from watching it because it's kind of a strange little thing, this movie. So... Where can you find it? I don't know. I, you have to buy a DVD, perhaps, to watch it. And you might want to not do that because you've never heard of it. I find this movie to be endlessly fascinating, and I'm excited to share it with the world, finally. This is one I've been sitting on for a while. Uh, and I'm just like, yeah, really excited to share with people. About it. And it's been a while, I think, since we've done a movie that not really a lot of people have heard about at all. Like, I can't remember the last one we covered where it was sort of like in that world of November men or whatever, where we're like, why don't more people know about this at all? So it's good to kind of get into that kind of movie after we've done, I think, a lot of sort of big star uh, films <clears throat> so far this season. Cool. Um, films yeah. about big stars. <laughs> and I want to draw people's attention to my other podcast, The Director's Wall that I do with AJ Gonzalez. Uh, we are now, cause this is what February, I think. 
Does that seem right? That's uh, weird. Uh, we are starting a new director like around this time. Like we just wrapped up or about to wrap up Coppola. And uh, now who knows what we'll be talking about. Like, Do you this know is sort who of the new director is going to be? I have no idea. AJ's picking it. He's hinted at a few ideas. It, maybe it'll be Sofia Coppola. Maybe it'll be Werner Herzog. Uh, I don't know. I'm kind of excited to see because it's his turn to pick. So we take turns every four years because <laughs> it takes us forever to do a season. But uh, it's now AJ's turn because I picked Coppola. So maybe he'll pick another Italian filmmaker obsessed with violence as they all are. Oh, uh, who, kno- no. who knows? <laughs> who knows? Maybe it's just De Palma. I have no idea. So, uh, or Robert Zombie. I don't know. It's going to be a surprise. So, so he, what he, assuming he doesn't pick the one that you want to do after that, do you know what you want to do after the one he picks? I really want to do Paul Schrader. I want to cover the movies he directed and the movies he wrote. And like, I'm very just like excited about what he's got going on. Yeah. And I want to, I want to do a deep dive and really, and because he is so strong with his themes and like continuing it through movie to movie. And I feel like looking at that body of work as a whole would be really cool and, and upsetting that this is dark and, uh, but I don't know. I and he's still going and he still has that punch at him. So I, I, cause I, that's kind of what I've liked about Coppola was when we would go dip into the movies he didn't direct, but just wrote or like edited or like, it is like that, that kind of multifaceted artist, much like Robert town in a way. Uh, I, I like I'm really like excited to, to kind of do that, and it'll take a while. Schrader's you know worked hard his whole life, but uh, yeah, I think that would be my pick. I, I totally could change my mind in X amount of years, but who knows? Maybe AJ will pick Charles Lawton. We'll be done in one episode, then it'll be my turn. That'd be so, awesome. <laughs> you know, just be like one and done, one and done. There's no rules that say it can't be a director who's only done one thing. So, yeah. Well, like with Coppola, you don't just do the things that he directed. You include. Yeah. So if you did Charles Lawton as a director, you could also do all of his films as an actor. Which would be a lot then. And then it would not. But then I feel that would distract. I feel you need someone to bounce back to you. Though I love Charles Lawton. I just listened to an episode of the Abbott and Costello radio show. And Charles Lawton was the, the, the guest on there. And it's just a lot of fat jokes. And it's just really weird to hear this respected, one of the greatest actors of all time, like hamming it up and just like comparing his belly to Lou Costello's belly and just like some weird, cheap, <laughs> cheap jokes, but with one of the greatest actors of all time. Uh, yeah, Lawton, big fan of Charles Lawton. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, director, I mean, one of the best one-off directorial movies of all time, Night of the Hunter fantastic so i don't know aj could have a surprise up his sleeve or he may make me go through every ron howard movie for the next five years you know (laughs) which will just keep feeding itself and never end until one of us dies the director's Uh, whale (laughs) would you if we did ron howard would you listen to every episode even though you don't like ron howard so much just to hear our take on it i think i like you guys enough that i would but i would uh (laughs) Not well, watch along. <laughs> actually, you know, I'm not sure because I I did I did bail halfway through the the M Night cast because you hated you were so mean about his best movies, uh, The Happening and Lady in the Water. So 
Yeah. They're not his best <laughs> movies, but they're two of my favorite of his movies. And you got so I just, you know, I guess it depends on how you how you did it. But uh, I don't know. But uh, maybe because you also ate Ron Howard, the hate along would be like, oh, I can get into this. I also have problems with this movie. I don't know. I can't. I don't have. So I, just, I feel like. I feel like AJ and I are not into doing that anymore. Like we could have hated more some of the lesser Coppola movies, but I feel like doing this show with you has kind of helped me kind of guide our show with with AJ away from that kind of way of talking about movies. Well, already the world is wrong is paying off. The world is a little bit yeah. less wrong. Let's hope this has, <laughs> it has this effect on on others as well. Um, yeah. So, well, I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, of course, I have my other podcast, The Radio 8 Ball Show, which is on currently on hiatus but has plenty of <laughs> episodes. And you can find out all about that and about my movies and about my music at my site, which is called previouslyyours.com. And uh, you could also just look for andrasjones.com. Either will find it. And if you'd like cool. to uh, get in touch with us, you can write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram on, at, at theworldiswrongpodcast and on Twitter at worldiswrongpod. And... Yeah, this has been great. Uh, I'm looking forward to next week's episode about Chronicle of Corpses. And well, in two weeks. Sorry. I'm we're now on a two-week yes, schedule. We're, thank we're, you, we're... Brian, for keeping me honest. Yes. <laughs> two weeks from now when we get into Chronicle of Corpses. In the meantime, uh, you know, just uh, bask in the dwindling tequila sunlight. And just remember that wherever you are, whether you're a cop or a Coke dealer or the proprietor of an Italian restaurant, <laughs> the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong, right? Great. You son of a bitch! How could you do this? Friendship is the only choice in life you can make that's yours! You can't choose your family! God damn it, I've had to face that! And no man should be judged for whatever direction his dick goes. That's like uh, uh, blaming a compass for pointing north, for Christ's sake! Friendship is all we have! We chose each other! How could you fuck it up? How could you make us look so bad? Welcome aboard, uh... Here, careful, it's loaded. Keep it as a souvenir. You're going to spend the rest of your life in jail. And I'm not going to be there to take care of you. I'll be in a Mexican jail. She's never going to testify. How can you say that, goddamn you? Not against her husband. And if she can't testify against me, she can't testify against you. She's going to marry you. She said that? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Under the circumstances, she would have said anything. She would have fucked a snake. <laughs> Come on now, be serious. I am serious. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film, 
First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred.